The Lord be with you. A very good evening to all of you. A warm welcome to our service this evening. Our friends, today we continue, uh, this evening we continue with our series on the Gospel of Mark, looking specifically at the passage I read just now, uh, chapter 10, 13 to 31, on page 1008. And you will also find at the center of the bulletin, uh, in the middle, a simple sermon outline to guide us in our discussion. As we begin, let me uh, lead us in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, and thank you for bringing us together around your Word. And Father, we pray that you will open our hearts to you, and listen to you, and to obey. And as I speak now, Lord, please guide me to speak your truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Our friends, you will recall that over a year ago now, I think it must be, uh, we had an earlier series on Mark, uh, uh, bringing us over the first seven and a half chapters of Mark. And we found uh, during that time when we were studying it and meditating on it, that the seven and a half chapters addressed the question of who Jesus was. And we hear Mark capturing this and Jesus trying to show who he was. Uh, we hear particularly the questions that people ask as they sought to understand who Jesus was. For example, straight into uh, at the beginning of his ministry, in chapter 1, we hear questions being asked. What is this? A new teaching? And in chapter 2, the people were asking, who can forgive sins but God? And they get more and more confused. This holy man, this teacher of the Scriptures, why does he sit and eat with sinners? It's a no-go for um, uh, Jewish uh, teachers, holy people, to sit together with sinners, the, the ones who they consider as not worthy uh, to come together at the at table with them. And also, it carries on. There were questions asked when Jesus permitted his disciples to do what was illegal to do under the Hebrew system. Uh, that is unlawful to work on a Sabbath, even if it is eating grain from the field. And as they watched Jesus calm the storm, which was threatening to overwhelm the boat, they still cannot understand. But they know that when he uh, spoke the word, the seas come. And they ask the question, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You see, friends, the crowds that gather around Jesus during the first century AD, including his 12 closest uh, servants, uh, disciples, saw a man just like any other ordinary man. But this man has proven that he was no ordinary man. He could cast out demons that possess uh, people. He could heal the sick, make the lamb walk, and the blind see, and the deaf hear. And he could feed thousands with a little bit of bread and some fish. They just could not understand who Jesus was. Was he just a miracle worker? Or just another teacher? Or was he the Messiah? The Lord's anointed one who was promised in the scriptures who have come to save Israel. Now in our current series, Jesus has begun to show them uh, why he has come. That is to say, what he has come to do. And as Jesus continued to teach and prepare them for his suffering and his death on the cross, we will see in today's passage the disciples getting more and more agitated. 
more and more distressed because they could not understand that if he was the, the lost anointed, how could it be that he has come to suffer? Until they cried out that question that is uh, the um, main point in our, our passage today. They cried out in chapter 10, verse 26. Then who can be saved? Who can be saved? If this, this, this great teacher, this great miracle worker, you know, uh, is going to die. Then who can be saved? And let's turn to page 1008 as we meditate over these points. And first of all, as we move in uh, to, to look at our passage, we see Jesus teaching us uh, on how to become childlike. Let me read from verse 13 to you. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. The previous time that Mark records Jesus holding a child, was in the previous chapter, chapter 9, uh, verses 36 and 37, to show that accepting a child in his name was the same as accepting him. And if you are accepting Jesus, then you are also at the same time accepting the one who sent him, his father. But yet, they have not understood. Today, they try to block the children from coming to him. They scolded the people uh, who were bringing them in. Now, friends, many things have been uh, written and spoken regarding the low regard for children in first century uh, Jewish or Palestinian context. There was a perception that they were dependent and not really useful until they grew up, become adults, and can pull their weight. And you know, children being children through the ages, they, are distractingly, they can be distractingly mischievous and loud. Yet the Lord has taught the disciples that the humblest among them, the children, must be accepted, and accepting them means accepting Jesus, and accepting Jesus means accepting the Father, God himself. Furthermore, these adults were bringing children to be blessed by Jesus, and we know that scriptures brought us back way into the beginning of uh, Genesis, in Genesis 9, when um, Moses record for us, Noah blessing his sons, and, and, and Isaac blessing Jacob and Esau in Genesis 49, and also Jacob in his turn blessing his sons and grandsons Ephraim and Manasseh in Genesis 48. Of course, elsewhere in the Torah, we also speak, uh, the scriptures also speak about the laying of hands. For example, in Deuteronomy 34, Moses laid his hands on Joshua and thus passed on to him, the succeeding generation, the office of spiritual and political leadership of Israel. And so we see there is already a tradition of bringing children or bringing the younger generation to an elder for blessing to be uh, bestowed upon them and for the hands to be laid on them. And so we see a very upset Jesus instructing the disciples to let the children come to him and not to do anything to hinder them. Jesus said in verse 15, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So friends, what is it like to be childlike? Childlikeness means to be helpless. You see, the children, they couldn't come by themselves. They were brought in by the adults, and even then the adults got scolded. They were dependent, they were helpless. And they have nothing to offer, no resources, no legal or social or political standing. 
They were strictly and totally dependent on others. The message we seem to be getting from this simple passage is it is only possible to have God ruling in our lives when we totally depend on Him. The kingdom of God belongs to those who can bring nothing to gain entry into the kingdom. There is nothing that cannot pay the exorbitant visa fees. Of course, there are no visa fees for entering the kingdom of God. They don't have a passport even, uh, talking in terms of secular uh, values. They don't have diplomatic status. The only way we can enter the kingdom is like a child, helpless, defenseless, like a refugee who can only depend on Jesus to bring us in. I was reading a Christian writer, and I like to paraphrase how he explains this. He said, Only when our hands are held out in simple, childlike faith, as empty as those of a beggar's, can they be filled with the treasures and the promise of God's kingdom. Wonderful. We can only enter the kingdom of God if we cannot depend on ourselves, but we can only depend on God. Now we move on to the next part of our our passage, which is Jesus' teachings on human efforts and wealth from verse 17 onwards. Now, as our story continues, Mark records for us this. A man ran up and knelt before Jesus and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life in verse 17? Now, a few things come to our mind when we read this. First of all, no one tried to prevent this man from running up to Jesus. In fact, the sense of running up to Jesus could easily have conveyed a sense of uh, somebody coming to attack him. How is it nobody was uh, preventing him? But he seemed harmless enough, uh, humble enough. He, he knelt down on the floor and bowed, falling on his knees before Jesus. And he spoke to Jesus, asking for an answer to a question that even his closest disciples have not asked so far in uh, Mark. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus did not give an answer straight away. Jesus just picked up on the way he addressed him. Good teacher. So he asked in verse 18, he said, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, you know, the rabbis over the centuries like to be addressed by very exorbitant uh, titles and names. But one thing they don't like, they, they do not demand to be called is good. Because in their minds and in their rabbinical teachings, goodness is only associated with God. Now, Jesus was not saying, by saying this, Jesus was not saying that he was not God or that he was not good. He was just wanting the man to recognize that the ultimate standard of goodness is God himself. And no mere human being can make a judgment on what is good or what is bad based on his own human terms because they would not be right. And Jesus went on in verse 19 to list the commandments. And and we can read here, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal. Do not bear false witness, do not defraud, and honor your father and your mother. Friends, this list of six commands gave us something to think about. In fact, over the um, uh, centuries, uh, many Christian writers uh, have uh, argued and speculated on this. 
particularly this one on the command not to defraud. A lot of excitement has been created by this, as it was not in the original Ten Commandments. But here's what I think. I think Jesus was simply reminding people not to profit by trickery. And in the modern world, even right now, people were um, profiting by tricking people into depositing big sums of money into their bank accounts, uh, by promising them romance and love and uh, marriage. Some even lost their life savings. And Jesus is just telling them, do not enrich yourself by tricking people. In a way, it is reinforcing the command not to steal, especially not by trickery. Now, the second thing that we can notice from here is that Jesus has left out the first four commandments that uh, dealt with man's relationships with God. But of course, he is going to deal with that in the very next verse. And the third thing we can notice here also is Jesus has left out the commandment not to covet apparently in recognition of the man's vast uh, possessions and wealth uh, that could easily gain him anything that he wanted without having to uh, long after another person's. And notice how the man responded to Jesus. The man confidently answered Jesus that he had been obeying all these commandments since he was old enough to, take, to be held re- accountable, which in Jewish terms would be around the age of 12, the age of accountability. And Mark recorded Jesus' response in verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Jesus knew that the man was earnestly speaking the truth about keeping the commandments. And he loved him for his earnest efforts of doing so. Yet, Jesus also knew that the mere legalistic keeping of the moral and ethical laws, if not, command, if not accompanied by a genuine love uh, for God, by placing him above all things, was not sufficient. Jesus told the man, One thing you lack. It's very ironic, isn't it? This man has got everything. But Jesus told him, you lack one thing. It's like Jesus said, you lack the true love of God. Your material possessions mean more to you than God, and that is um, um, not good for you. And notice how Jesus commands him to do this. Go sell and give and then follow me. The emphasis is not on the go and sell and give, but the emphasis is on the following of Jesus. And if material wealth and possessions obstruct this call to follow Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, then get rid of them. But in the case of the man, we read in Mark, verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The man places or placed his possessions above discipleship the true following of Jesus. And Jesus went on to teach about grace. He, used, he wanted to use the uh, encounter with the young man, with this rich man, uh, to point out something. He wanted to point out that wealth, indeed, could be a curse rather than a blessing, as it could prevent entry to the kingdom of God. 
Jesus said in verse 23, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed by this summing up of the encounter with the, young, uh, with the rich man. You mean to say, oh, that faithful obedience oh, since a young age was all for nothing, didn't count for anything? But wasn't it, wasn't we taught that wealth was a sign of God's blessing and approval for our moral and ethical life? Wasn't it a blessing? And wasn't poverty and want a sign of God's displeasure with us, a judgment on us for some sin that we have committed? But Jesus reemphasized in verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples could not understand how their teacher could so easily consider riches to be a possible curse rather than what they have always believed and have been taught a blessing from God. So they burst out in verse 26. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? The disciples were thoroughly distressed. For the kingdom of God means salvation and eternal life. And if entry into the kingdom was harder, was going to be harder than the biggest animal that they know, passing through the smallest hole that they know, then it must be impossible to enter the kingdom of God and be saved. And this is exactly what Jesus said in verse 27. He said this, With man it is impossible. It is, with man it is impossible, but with, not with God, for all things are possible with God. You see, friends, men can do nothing to save themselves. The observation of the law and the commandments could not save. They were not meant to be a report card for God to mark, pass or fail. If it were to be so, then all our report cards would be marked in red, fail. For no one except Jesus could keep them perfectly. Even selling and giving away your riches in your possessions could not save. This could not save. It was done legalistically as if to gain favor with God so that God can give us eternal life and entry into the kingdom of God uh, in return for our selling and giving away our possessions. You see, friends, only God can save. And this is what is important. God can save, and God in His greatness, in His mercy and love for us, gave us something, His grace, something that we do not uh, deserve, something that we in our sinful state uh, uh, could not even dream of having. Only God can provide that. God can save. And we found later what Jesus has come to do, that God has sent him. That God has sent him so that those who truly follow him might live and enter the kingdom of God. And in our final passage today, or the last part of our passage today, uh, Jesus' teaching on the price of discipleship. You know, our Apostle Peter is a very, was a very direct and uh, gung-ho type of person. Uh, he always spoke out first and on behalf of the others. And perhaps this question, uh, this statement that he was going to say in uh, verse 28, we was trying to push uh, Jesus a little bit. And he said this, he said, Oh, see, see, we have left everything and followed you. As if to say, doesn't this count for anything? 
And Jesus said, he responded by saying that there is actually, indeed, a prize for the sacrifice of committing themselves totally to Jesus. And this prize comes twofold. One, in the present time. In the present time, the family of the Christian body, the church in our context, the people with their material possessions and their families, they are there for the disciples to enjoy as well. The homes and their, their families, their children, and the fellowship that they have, that was the immediate prize. Notice also that Jesus omits two things from this list. He says, wives were left out and fathers were left out. The first one probably because of the sanctity of marriage that we uh, heard Andrew sp- spoke about uh, last week. And the second, because God the Father is always deemed to be the head of the family and need not be mentioned. And the second uh, fold of the prize is that there was an even bigger reward waiting for them, waiting for the disciples and eternal life in the new world and in the new age to come. And so we come to our final verse. And always, this verse seems to be a bit of an anomaly. What is it doing there? Well, Jesus said this in verse 31, but many who are first will be last and the last first. It seems like somebody has put it in um, maybe by accident or something. But if we read it carefully, we find that With this verse, Jesus actually summed up everything from verse 13 to 30. He sums up everything. He, in fact, taught us in this verse that the values of the world got to be turned upside down for the values of the kingdom. You see, it is the first thing that he, the first thing that come across is helpless totally dependent little children are those to whom the kingdom of God belongs. The kingdom of God doesn't belong to the strong and the independent and those who are gung-ho and going for it. And secondly, entry into God's kingdom is not through wealth and prestige, but through a willingness to give up all this to be a, and to single-mindedly follow Jesus. And thirdly, the price for the, the disciples, let, let me say that again. The price for the price the disciples pay for following Jesus is a hundredfold compensation in the church here and now and eternal life in the world to come. And so as we come to the close of our uh, passage, um, let's ask ourselves what we can bring home with us this evening. Well, there are lots of things, but I would like to suggest uh, the, the following. We are reminded, first of all, that we cannot do anything to save ourselves only by God's grace. Only God can. And God has done this by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to live as a man, suffer and die for humanity, so that believing in Him, we can inherit eternal life. Secondly, our lives, therefore, must reflect this helplessness, just like that of a child. And we must depend totally on God to guide us, to serve Him and each other. Thirdly, there can be no room for arrogance or boastfulness as we talk about uh, and think of our work for church and for God or for the people and the community around us or how much we are giving to the church in order to support its work. 
these blessings come to us first from God. Fourthly, we are called to look after those who are less fortunate than us, to make use of our resources, time and talent in the overall life of the church, particularly towards those who have dedicated themselves to a full-time ministry in the church. I urge you today, friends, if you have not yet involved yourself in any of the ministries of the church, or if you have not involved yourself in looking after those people who have given up their lives in order to serve God, that you Think of something that you would really love to do, like perhaps it is the music industry or being in the choir or helping in kids' church or the young adults and home visitation, hospital visitation, praying one-on-one with people, uh, leading people and pointing people to God. The list goes on. Speak to any or one of us uh, if you have any uh, interests or things that you want to do. And finally, Jesus in this passage this evening reminds us that the fellowship of the church depends on us, on each one of us sitting in the pew uh, and here today. Depends on us, on us to reach out to others. And this is particularly important when we think of those people who are sitting in the pew next to us who are new to this community you know why? So that they can feel that they belong and are enjoying the hundredfold price of discipleship that Jesus spoke about in the here and now. Even as we um, point them towards the, um, the final price to come, which is eternal life in the kingdom of God. This is what we have to do. Find some ministry to do and Concentrate on building up this fellowship in the church, reaching out to others, particularly the new ones. And let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for reminding us once again that while we pay the price for discipleship, we also have a price. The price being in the here and now and also in the age to come. We want to thank you and praise you And we pray that, Lord, you will guide us and lead us in our weakness and in our own selfishness. We'll be able to realize and try our best to do and to to help each other and to serve you and each other in a much more better way. And we pray that your spirit will guide us and lead us in this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.